0: to um, the uh, five, I'm sorry, six articles of faith. And these are six required beliefs, okay? So we talked last week about their required behaviors, but now I want to talk about uh, required beliefs, doctrinal affirmations or doctrinal statements. And the first one I want to talk about is the belief in the unity of God. Now, according to Islam, there is only one God, And this one God exists as simply one person. So what doctrine in Christianity is this a clear refutation of? The Trinity, that's right. They vigorously reject the notion of the Trinity, that there is one God who simultaneously exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And indeed, I would argue that if you know nothing else about Islam, you want to know about this doctrine. Because the doctrine of the unity of God is the most foundational and central doctrine in Islam. And this not only says that there is only one God, but that no other being, no other thing can be given divine attributes or given the title of divinity in any way. So if you believe, for example, that Jesus is the Son of God, then you are violating this doctrine. And indeed, it turns out that a violation of the doctrine of the unity of God is actually committing the most grievous sin in Islam. It's called the sin of shirk. It's an unpardonable sin. Meaning, if you die and you have not repented of violating this doctrine, then you're guaranteed to go to hell. Okay? Do not pass go, do not collect 200, <laughs> go straight to hell. Okay? So it's a, it's a very serious doctrine. And so, of course, a refutation of that or or a violation of that, I should say, is then, turns out to be a serious offense to God. Now, in addition to this notion, or I should say related to this question about how many gods there are, and of course they only believe that there's one God, there's also been a debate amongst Christians as to whether Christians and Muslims worship the same God. And indeed, I think there was a professor over at Wheaton University, um, who was a Christian, or who is a Christian, and claimed that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. She got in a bit of uh, of maybe administrative um, trouble for that. I don't know if she got fired or not. I don't know. It's irrelevant. But as a result of her statement about that, many Christians began debating this question. Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God? Now, I know a lot of my friends, a lot of my brothers and sisters in Christ would say, yes, we do worship the same God. But I beg to differ about that, okay? And I want to offer you my rationale as to why I don't think we worship the same God. And it's important to understand, first of all, that the word God is not God's name. God is more like the title of a position than it is the name of a person, okay? The title of the position is a what, but the person who occupies that position is a who, so let me give you an illustration of what I mean by this. Uh, think of the office of the President of the United States. Right? We're in an election cycle right now, and there's many people vying to become the next President of the United States. Notice, the President of the United States is the title of a position. Okay? It's a what. And that position entails certain powers. Like, for example, uh, it entails uh, executive powers, or the, the power to nominate federal judges, or the power to veto certain laws, okay? But the person who occupies that position, whether it's a Democrat or Republican a Libertarian, whatever it might be, is a certain person, okay? So the office of the position in the United States is a what, but the person who eventually might occupy that position is a who, and it could be one of several people. In the same way, God is the title of a position. It's a what, And both Christians and Muslims both believe in the same what? They believe in the same God who is, is someone who would create the universe, who administrates his kingdom, who judges humanity. But we believe a different person is the one who occupies that office of God. Christians, of course, believe that person is Yahweh, and Muslims believe that person is Allah. Okay? So notice, we believe in the same what? We believe in the same office of God, but we believe a different person occupies that position. And when you look at the characteristics and the identity of Allah versus Yahweh, you come to find out that these are radically different persons. Okay? So um, Allah, for example, is Unitarian, as we already mentioned. One God who exists as one person. Yahweh is Trinitarian. One God who, who simultaneously exists as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Allah does not have a son. Yahweh has a son. Allah is transcendent, meaning he is separate from his creation. But Yahweh is not only transcendent, but he is also imminent, which means he enters into creation and develops relationships with his created being. And of course, Jesus being an obvious example of that. And so you can continue to go down the line of these different characteristics of Allah and Yahweh and come to find out that they, they differ in fundamental ways. Now I'm not just talking about like these trivial superficial matters. I'm talking about core identities. And that's why I say the person who occupies the position of God, whether it's Allah or Yahweh, is a completely different person. And that's why I would argue that we do not worship the same God. Another way to put it is this. Imagine if Jesus was to appear on stage right now. I submit to you that those of you who are Christians in this audience would bow down and worship Jesus as God. But those of you who are Muslims in this audience would not bow down and worship Jesus as God. Why? Because Christians and Muslims don't worship Jesus as God. Why? Because both Christians and Muslims don't believe Jesus is God. If we worship the same God, then we would both believe we would both worship Jesus as God. But for a Christian to worship Jesus as God is a great act of devotion. Whereas, if a Muslim was to worship Jesus as God, is to commit the greatest sin in Islam. So, how could it be that we worship the same God when both Christians and Muslims do not worship Jesus as God? And so, again, that's just sort of my thinking as to why I don't think. Um, We worship the same God, even though, as I said, many Christians, and I know many Muslims also believe that we worship the same God, but I just don't think that logically or theologically that makes sense. So, again, that's being the first article of faith, the first doctrinal belief that Muslims are required to believe in, is belief in the unity of God. Muslims are also required to believe in God's angels. And according to uh, the Quran... Allah has created angels, and these angels do not have free will. They simply administrate the kingdom of God. And uh, these angels also are appointed to humans. And so there are two angels that follow each and every one of you. One angel keeps track of all your good deeds, and one angel keeps track of all your bad deeds. And so these angels then keep account and a record of all the things that you do so that eventually it can be brought to an account at the end of time When you're resurrected. Now, uh, Islam also teaches that there are these other angelic like beings called jinn. And these jinn are are sort of equivalent to or parallel to what we would call demons, but the theology is rather different. Jinn in Islam do have free will, and uh, they were created by Allah in the state that they were in. And these jinn are mischievous, sometimes wicked, and they would argue that Iblis, Satan, who they call Iblis, is a jinn. He is one of the created beings that Allah made in that particular state. Okay? So angels have, do not have free will, but jinn do have free will. Angels simply follow the commands of Allah. Jinn are, uh, kind of have free will, and they can kind of do whatever they want. And oftentimes they do mischievous or wicked things. Okay? So that's sort of their theology about angels and jinn. But again, it's required belief. Muslims must accept that Allah has created these beings. A third doctrinal belief in Islam is the belief in God's prophets. And according to Islam, there have been prophets, human beings, that have been commissioned by Allah to speak to every people group in all of the history of humanity. And it turns out that many characters in the Bible turn out to be prophets of Allah. So for example, uh, uh, Muslims would say, well, actually, Adam, for example, was like a prophet of Allah. They, Islam did not begin with Muhammad. Rather, it began at the beginning of time, with Adam and Eve. Okay? Moses, they would say, was a prophet of Allah. David was a prophet of Allah. Jesus was a prophet of Allah. And, of course, they say Muhammad was also a prophet of Allah. Okay? And, they, as you can see, I, I put photo not available, because I know that in Islam, it is offensive to show images of Muhammad. Uh, interestingly, by the way, there are many classic works of painting in famous museums around the world that have depictions of Muhammad that were painted by Muslims for several hundred years. But it's since fallen out of favor of course to show these pictures for theological reasons. But nevertheless notice according to Islam Jesus is someone who Muslims are required to believe in as a prophet. Okay now it's important to recognize that the Islamic version of Jesus is not the biblical view of Jesus, okay? So according to Islam, Jesus is not the Son of God, as I already mentioned, right? To say he's the Son of God would be to commit which sin? Shirk. That's right, the sin of shirk, an unpardonable sin, okay? Jesus is not part of the Trinity, okay? Jesus was not crucified. And this is a statement in the Quran where it says that they did, that they did not crucify Jesus. Now, of course, if Jesus wasn't crucified... Well, he could have been possibly have been resurrected. And if he wasn't resurrected, then he couldn't have possibly atoned for sins. So notice, on the Islamic version of Jesus, Jesus is merely a human being and a prophet, just like we would believe that Moses was a human being and a prophet. Or just like Muslims would say that Muhammad was a human being and a prophet. Okay? Nothing more, nothing less. Now, what's interesting about this is that we see this and we think, man, you know, Muslims really seem to downplay the Christology of Jesus, you know, that his theology is lowered in the Islamic view. And that's certainly true. Obviously, they do not consider him to be a divine being. But nevertheless, when I read the Quran, when we were studying uh, Islam in school, um, I learned a lot of interesting things about what the Quran teaches about Jesus. So, for example, according to the Quran, Jesus' birth was announced by angels. That's pretty significant because chances are none of your births were announced by angels. Uh, according to the Quran, it teaches that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Okay? The Quran teaches specifically that Jesus was able to perform miracles like uh, heal the sick and raise the dead. The Quran teaches that Jesus lived a sinless and perfect life. The Quran t- says that Jesus was actually called the Messiah. It actually refers to him as the Messiah. And according to the Quran, Jesus never died, and he was taken up to be in the presence of Allah, and in some versions of Islam, he's the appointed one to return at the end of time to kill the Antichrist, to break all the crosses, and to kill all the pigs. So there'd be no more pulled pork sandwiches at that point, obviously. But nevertheless, that's pretty significant, right? That Jesus has this high, I'm sorry, that the Quran has a fairly high view of Jesus. Now, that's kind of interesting, but when you contrast this with what the Qur'an teaches about Muhammad on these very same points. The Qur'an does not say that, that Muhammad had any sort of announcement of his birth. Rather, it teaches he had a normal birth. Uh, he, he, it doesn't attribute any miracles to him like it does with Jesus. Uh, the Qur'an does not say that he was sinless. It doesn't call Muhammad the Messiah. And according to the Qur'an, Muhammad has been dead and buried in Saudi Arabia for the last 1,400 years. And he's not the appointed one to come back. And so I hope you can see this that this is rather interesting for us as believers who again who are ambassadors for Christ, who want to proclaim the message of reconciliation, and what central figure in Christianity is central to the message of reconciliation? Jesus, yeah that's right. And guess what? Muslims are okay talking about him, right? Uh, you can bring up Jesus. You can talk about him. He's mentioned in the Quran quite favorably. And so this is an excellent entry point into talking about your faith with the Muslim. Talk about Jesus. Because again, this is common ground for you and the Muslim, even though, of course, they don't have the same view of Jesus as we do. But nevertheless, belief in Jesus is required in Islam. Okay. So again, that goes, just goes back to the whole idea about that according to islam muslims are required to believe in the prophets of allah now uh, another doctrinal belief another article of faith in islam is the belief in god's books and the quran identifies four divine revelations um, that allah has given to various prophets throughout human history and i'll I'll give you the first one because the first one's pretty easy the quran okay so the Quran makes reference to itself as being a divine revelation from Allah given to which prophet? Muhammad, exactly. Now, can anyone think of one of the other three divine revelations that Allah has given humanity that is on par with the Quran? What's that? Torah? Yes, the Torah. So according to the Quran, the Torah is also a divine revelation given to humanity to which prophet? Moses. That's right. Okay. Can anyone think of a a second, or sorry, a third divine revelation? Yes, Psalms. Okay. So the Psalms are also a divine revelation on par with the Quran given to which prophet? David. That's right. And there's one more divine revelation. Does anyone know what that is? The gospel. That's right. The gospel is also identified by the Quran as a true revelation given to humanity to which prophet? Jesus, okay? Now, I know what you might be—and by the way, when I say gospels, the gospel, of course, we're thinking like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? But I know what you might be thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Muslims are required to believe in the Torah, Psalms, and the gospel, okay, then why don't Muslims believe what we believe about Jesus when clearly the Gospels teach that Jesus died, rose again, atoned for our sins, claimed to be God, and all that stuff. What, how, how do Muslims get around this? Notice, they're required to believe in the Gospel. But we know what the Gospel says about Jesus, and yet they reject that vigorously. So how do they deal with that? What, how, what do they say about this? Yes, it's corrupted. So according to Muslims... Only the Quran has remained free from corruption. The Torah, the Psalms, and Gospel, although they were true revelations when they were revealed, they have since become corrupted. Either Christians and Jews intentionally changed them or uh, they were just, you know, reckless and they allowed that their, their um, divine revelations to become corrupted. Okay. Now, this is the most common objection you'll run into when talking to a Muslim. Every Muslim I've ran into and spoken to, whether in the States or in the Middle East, has told me when we've had a, any kind of substantive conversation, Alan, you know, I appreciate what you're saying about, about Jesus, but frankly, uh, the gospel, and by the way, the Psalms and Torah, have been corrupted. Okay? almost it, It's like part of Islamic culture that everybody in Islam believes that the Bible in those parts is corrupted. Now, this is not only the most common objection, it's the most serious objection. Why? Because virtually every conversation you have with a Muslim ultimately comes down to this one issue. Because where is the true identity of Jesus and the gospel message found? In the gospel. But that's the very source of authority that Muslims are going to reject. So this becomes a, as I said, a substantial objection that we have to resolve, because no matter what, whether you're, um, I don't know how, if you've ever done any kind of evangelism training, or if you've been, you know, done any kind of sharing of your faith, whatever you do, whether you're going to use a tract, whether you're going to talk about Jesus, whether you're going to talk about prophets, however you go about it, at the end of the day, that conversation eventually comes down to the issue of authority. Right? Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God, or do you believe the Quran is the word of God? Okay? And of course, since the Muslim's going to reject the Bible as an authority, then you're going to be left at a stalemate because the Muslims will say the Quran is the word of God. You'll say, no, the Bible is the word of God, and you have to resolve this. Okay? So let me offer you a, a short tactic that I use when I'm talking to Muslims to help deal with this objection because, as I said, it's perhaps the most significant and, of course, the most common objection that you will run into. So, remember we made an important distinction last week between two things. Does anybody remember what the distinction was? I said there's a distinction we need to make between what Islam teaches and what's the other things. Anyone remember? That's right, what Muslims believe. Okay. So, so Islam teaches a whole bunch of things, but many Muslims believe all sorts of things, some things that are just inconsistent with the Quran. By the way, of course, we know that happens with Christianity as well, right? In any religion. You have authoritative teaching, but you have sometimes this adherence believing different things. It is the same case with regards to this particular objection. Although Muslims say the Bible, the the Torah, Psalms, and Gospel are corrupted, the Quran, I'm going to argue, teaches the opposite. That it's the uncorrupted word of God. Now, before I give you the details of this, let me just offer two clarifications. Number one is this, I am not trying to suggest that the Quran is sufficient to paint an accurate picture of who Jesus is or what the gospel is. I know there's a lot of uh, American missionaries who go off to Middle Eastern countries and they have this idea that, well, we can use the Quran to tell Muslims about the gospel, you know, and somehow by doing that. And uh, I'm not arguing that nor am I suggesting that's a good approach, okay? Second of all, this tactic is not meant to say to you Christians that the way we know the Bible is true and trustworthy is because the Quran says so. No, 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 That's not my point, okay? My point is simply when you're talking to a Muslim, when they raise the objection of biblical corruption, you can use this tactic to move the objection off the table so you can get back to presenting the gospel, okay? In other words, my approach when I'm talking to a Muslim is to tell them about who Jesus is and what the message of reconciliation is as taught from uh, the gospel, okay? When they say, well, the, the gospel's corrupted, Alan, I can't trust it, then I'm going to use this tactic, which I'm about to show you, to move the objection off the table, then I can go back to presenting the gospel, okay? Because once they can't say that the the is corrupted, well, then we can look at what the, the witness of the gospel says. So here are two things that the Quran teaches, that I think makes this point. Number one is this. The Quran teaches that no one can change the words of Allah. No one can change the words of God. And the second thing the Quran teaches is that the Bible, and when I say Bible, I mean Torah, Psalms, Gospel, okay? That the Bible is an example of the word of God. So notice the obvious logic then. If the Quran teaches that no one can change the words of God, and the Quran teaches that the Bible is an example of the word of God, then according to the Quran, the Bible is the unchanged word of God. Right? I mean, that's the, that's the straightforward teaching that follows from this. Notice, this is what they call in logic a valid deductive argument. If these two premises are true, then the conclusion logically follows by necessity. Okay? Um, all bachelors are unmarried. John is a bachelor. Therefore, John is unmarried. Okay, notice if the first two premises are true, all bachelors are unmarried and uh, John is a bachelor. If those two premises are true, the conclusion that John is unmarried follows by necessity. It's unavoidable. This is the same, um, same. Uh, uh, what do I call it? The same uh, form of that same logic. Okay, the first two premises, if they can be shown to be true, then the conclusion follows. All right. So let's take, a, let's take a look and see. Does the Quran teach that no one can change the words of God? Okay. Um, there are several passages that teach this. Uh, probably about 12 or 13. I'm just going to mention four of them quickly to you. And by the way, you can read the context. You can read it in Arabic, by the way, as well. And you can cite any, uh, any major Islamic authority on this question. They'll agree that these passages are not taken out of context. Now, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but surah just means Chapter. Okay, So chapter 6, verse 115, uh, we see here, The, the word of thy Lord doth find its fulfillment in truth and in justice. None can change his words. Okay, so we see a statement declaring that no one can change the words of God. Surah 634, again, There is none that can alter the words and decrees of Allah. By the way, this is the uh, Abdullah Yusuf Ali translation, which is one that typically Muslims are okay with as, a, as an English translation. Surah 1064, no change can there be in the words of Allah. Uh, surah 1827, none can change his words. You can just go on and on and on. Again, probably 12 or, or, sorry, nine or so additional verses in the Quran that all teach the same thing no one can change the words of God. And by the way, th- that's not very controversial, right? If Allah is truly great, as Muslims say, Allahu Akbar, right? God is the greatest, then He has the power to prevent any human being, a mere mortal, from corrupting his heavenly text. And of course, we see that. Uh, Ibn Kathir, who's a well-known, renowned 14th century scholar, it's kind of like, if I was to cite Thomas Aquinas, or, you know, Spurgeon, or C.S. Lewis, right? It's like, those are the people who, like, all of us kind of say, oh yeah, those are, like, solid, you know, Christians. Ibn Kathir, who looked specifically at these verses about, can anyone change the words of a law, looked at the verses that I just pointed to, and agrees— He says, look, none among Allah's creation can remove the words of Allah from his books. Again, not very controversial to suggest this. But again, the Quran teaches it. But notice, the Quran says something else. And it teaches that the Bible, specifically Torah, Psalms, and Gospel, are examples of the words of Allah. So Surah 4, 136 says this, Oh, he believe. So any believers of God believe in Allah, believe in his messenger, and that means Muhammad, believe in the scripture which he had sent to his messenger, which means what? The Quran, that's right. And the scripture which he sent to those before him, meaning all the other prophets that were sent scripture, you are required to believe in those scriptures as well. Anyone who denieth Allah, his angels, his books, plural, any of those books that were given to the prophets, His messengers in the day of judgment hath gone far, far astray. So Muslims are required to believe in all of the scriptures sent to all the prophets. Here's another passage, Surah 2, 136. Say, we believe in Allah and the revelation given to us, meaning the Quran, and the revelation given to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes, and the revelation given to Moses and Jesus, meaning the Torah and the Gospel. And the revelation given to all the prophets from the Lord, we make no difference between one and another of them. Again, pretty straightforward teaching here. Again, you can read it in context, not like the context changes the meaning of this. Surah 3:3. Three, three. It is He, meaning God, who sent down to thee, step by step, in truth, the book, meaning the Quran, confirming what went before it, meaning confirming the previous messages, all right, the other revelations. Allah sent down the law of Moses, the gospel of Jesus, before this, as a guide to mankind, and he sent down the criterion of judgment between right and wrong. So we see that the Quran was sent as a way to confirm what was already previously there. Okay? Muslims are required to believe in these previous revelations as well. I'll give you one more. Surah 2946 says this, Don't dispute with the people of the book. Now, people, the book is just shorthand for Christians and Jews, okay? So don't argue with Christians and Jews, but just skip down to here. But say, we believe in the revelation which has come down to us, the Quran, and the revelation which has come down to you, meaning the Torah and the gospel, okay? So again, over and over and over, we see Muslims are told in the Quran by Allah that they are required to believe in the previous revelations, which of course are Uh, the Torah and the Gospel as well. So notice the two points of our logical syllogism, as they would call it. Number one, the Quran says the words of God can't be changed or corrupted. And number two, the Quran says the Bible is an example of the Word of God. So therefore, on the Quran's authority, the Bible is the unchanged and uncorrupted Word of God. And of course, that's what I say by saying, look, although Muslims claim the Bible in those parts is corrupted. The Quran, which is their highest authority, teaches the opposite. Now by the way, and I didn't include this just because of the shortness of our time, we even have in the Hadith and in the Sunnah, the biography of Muhammad, Muhammad himself saying he believes in the Torah and the gospel. For example, there's one time when some Jews come to ask Muhammad to adjudicate a matter. He says, bring the Torah here He takes the pillow that he's sitting on, sets it down, puts the Torah on it, and says, I believe in thee and in him who revealed thee. Other times, when some Christians are there uh, talking to Muhammad, he says, why, and and the Quran asks rhetorically of Muhammad, why do these Christians come to thee, meaning Muhammad, "for uh, for an answer when they have their own gospel and the laws of Allah in them? So in other words, Allah is asking rhetorically, why would a Christian come to you, Muhammad? They already have the gospel, which has the plain truth of Allah in it. Okay? So time and time again, even Muhammad himself affirms the reliability and trustworthiness of the gospel and of the Torah. Now, notice then, this little timeline. The Bible was finished being compiled around the first century, okay? doesn't matter when, but let's just, let's just, say, let's just say it's the first century, okay? So this is a an icon that shows the Bible, okay? So there's zero. This is maybe the first century. So the Bible was completed around the first century. Now, the Bible is then copied and copied and copied and copied and copied over and over and over till you get to the 7th century. And remember, 632 AD is when Muhammad dies and no additional revelation is given about the Quran, okay? So the Quran is technically completed at that point. Now, what does the Quran say in 632 about the Bible? It says what? That we just learned. It's true, and it's uncorrupted. Okay? No question about that. The Quran is telling Muslims at this time when it's being revealed that the Torah and the gospel that they have there is trustworthy and reliable and uncorrupted. Okay? If Muslims knew that the Bible, the Torah, Psalms, and gospel, were uncorrupted back then, what can Muslims know about the Bible today? It's still uncorrupted. And how do we know that? That's right. There's nothing that's changed in the Bible between when it was, when it was around when Muhammad and the Quran said it was uncorrupted to today. Because we have copies of the entire Bible from the 7th century. And we can compare those copies to the Bibles that we have today. And guess what? They're identical. Right? How do we know this? Because we have entire copies, like, for example, this, Codex Synacticus. Codex Synacticus was written 300 years, or I should say copied, 300 years before the Quran even came around. And guess what? We can compare the Bibles that we have today, and it's identical. So if nothing has changed in the Bible from, let's just take here, Codex Synacticus, uh 300 A.D. to today... And the Quran comes around right now and says, okay, yeah, this Bible is uncorrupted. And if the Bible continues to get copied, then if it's the same today as it was back then, then it's still uncorrupted. You see that? Nothing has changed in the Bible since the Quran said that the Bible, the Torah, Psalms, and Gospel are the uncorrupted word of Allah. So this is why I say when Muslims tell me or tell you that the Bible is corrupted, they're putting Allah in the hot seat. What do I mean by that? They're kind of making it hard for Allah. And here's why. Muslims claim, remember, they claim this. The Quran does not teach it. Muslims claim the Bible is corrupt. Now notice, this claim is either true or it's false. Okay, those are the only two options, right? Now, if the claim is true, that yes, it's true, the Bible is corrupt, then two possible outcomes follow. Either Allah could not protect the Bible or Allah would not protect the Bible. Now, if he couldn't protect the Bible, the Torah, Psalms, and Gospel, then he is inept. He is weak. He is not alu Akbar, as Muslims say, the greatest. Because he allows mere mortals to thwart his will and to corrupt his heavenly text. Well, no Muslim I know accepts this. Okay? So... Perhaps the other thing is possible. Maybe Allah wouldn't protect the Bible. But that would make Allah immoral. Why? Because remember, Allah commands Christians, Jews, and Muslims to believe what the Bible says. He even commands Christians to adjudicate by what the gospel says. He commands Jews—I'm sorry, did I say Jews? I uh, meant—he commands Christians to adjudicate by what the gospel says. He commands Jews to adjudicate by what the Torah says. And he commands Muslims to believe in all these revelations. Why would he command all these people to believe in those revelations if he knew they were corrupted? That would make Allah immoral. And so that's why neither one of these would be something that most Muslims would agree to. And so the only other option is that the claim that the Bible is corrupt is false, which would mean then the Bible is not corrupt, which is exactly what I've been saying, (laughs) Okay. So this is what I mean by, by Muslims claiming the Bible is corrupted. They're putting a law in the hot seat which shows that either he's inept or he's immoral. And of course, no Muslim would be willing to accept that. Hold your question. We're, we'll do some Q&A at the end, okay? For sure. Now, interestingly, um, I, when I started doing research on this, I did not find a Muslim scholar who believed that the Bible was corrupted for hundreds of years after Muhammad. No Muslim scholar I, that I know of, and maybe someone could point me to one, ever said the Bible was corrupted for hundreds of years. Not until like the 10th or 11th century um, do we see some Muslim scholars begin to talk about biblical corruption. Okay. So now why that might be, there's lots of speculation as to why Why after 400 years did finally somebody say the Bible was corrupted. But notice, none of the early followers did. Muhammad did not. Uh, Ibn Abbas, all the major guys who are. Uh, companions of, of uh, Muhammad never claimed this. And indeed what's interesting is this. I am now seeing more and more Islamic scholars who are believing this claim that the Bible is not corrupted. And so I started to do a search for prominent Muslims who, who believe this. Uh, Muhammad Mustafa Ayyub, who's a Lebanese scholar, Islamic scholar. Uh, he's now, I think he's teaching at Princeton University. But he says this. Contrary to the general Islamic view, the Quran does not accuse Jews and Christians of altering the text of their scriptures, but rather of altering the truth which those scriptures contain. The people, meaning the Christians and Jews, do this by concealing some of the sacred text, misapplying their precepts, or by altering words from their right position. Here he's quoting the Quran. He says, however, this refers more to the interpretation than to the actual addition or deletion of words. From the sacred books. Okay? In other words, what Christians and Jews have done is they misinterpret what the Bible says, but that the text is pure. Saeed Ahmed Hussain Shalcut Murthy, a Muslim apologist, says this The ordinary Muslim people acknowledge that the Injil, Injil is just the word for gospel, that the Injil is the word of God, yet they also believe through hearsay that the Injil is corrupted, even though they cannot indicate what passage was corrupted, when it was corrupted. And who corrupted it? Is there any religious community in this world whose lot is so miserable that they would shred their heavenly book with their own hands? Okay? So even this Muslim guy is saying, look, it doesn't make any sense. Why would Christians and Jews intentionally change what they believe to be the actual word of God? It makes no sense. Mohammed Abdu, who's an um, Egyptian jurist, also agrees. The charge of corruption, he says, of the biblical text, makes no sense at all. It would not have been possible for Jews and Christians everywhere to agree on changing the text. Even if those in Arabia had done it, the difference between their book and, say, those of their brothers in Syria and Europe would have been obvious. We believe that these gospel accounts are the true gospel. Okay? In other words, they think that, no, these are the true accounts that are not corrupted. By the way, I, just, I was just in Egypt uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, there is a scholar there at Al-Azhar University. Al-Azhar University is like the Harvard University in the Middle East. And this Islamic scholar who teaches at Al-Azhar University says, yes, the Bible is not corrupted and the Quran does not teach that. He, he, he kind of blasts Muslims. He says, man, how can, how can you say that? How can you say that the words of Allah have been corrupted? Many years ago, I was um, invited to speak at a maximum security state prison. And um, it's called Sentinel State Prison. It's in, uh, the, near the border of Mexico and San Diego on, on the San Diego side. Um, or I should say Southern California. It's technically not San Diego County. But nevertheless, I was invited there because the chaplain at that prison had said, you know what, Alan, we'd love for you to come and to teach the Christians at this, at this prison. There's about 150 Christians in this one prison yard. And a lot of them have uh, Muslim friends in prison there and or just have Muslim inmates, you know, that are are prison inmates with them. And they got a lot of time. So, you know, it'd be great if they knew something about Islam and they could talk to their Muslim friends. I said, okay, great. So I get to the the prison. And as you can imagine, getting into a maximum security state prison or getting out is extremely difficult, okay? And so, uh, you know, there's all the background checks, as you can imagine. But even when you get there, I had two armed security on either side of me, okay, who, who kind of guided me through all these barriers. So this like gate opens up and all three of us walk through and the gate closes behind us. Then a huge uh, security fence, which you can see all the way around. It's got an uh, incredible amount of voltage. Like arcs of electricity come out and like blow up birds as they fly by. It's crazy. And so that opens up. And so all three of us walk through and the gate closes behind us. We get into this building also inside there. There's another gate that opens up. All three of us walk through. And finally, we get to the prison yards. I don't know if you can see them, but there's some like baseball uh, diamonds there. These are the prison yards where the actual prisoners are. So that final fence opens up where all the prisoners are. I walk in, the fence closes behind me, and I turn around and I notice the guards are on the other side. <laughs> and I'm like, is this a trick? You know, they say, oh, yeah, 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 you didn't know? Uh, you're going to be here for the day. We'll come and get you at 4 o'clock. You know, have a nice time. And I'm like, what? You know? So all these prisoners I see over here start looking at me. Who's this guy standing here with like this backpack, you know? They start walking towards me and I think to myself, okay, this is the day I die. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, you know? Anyways, some guy comes in, comes up to me and he says to me, are you Brother Allen? And I'm like, well, yes, I am Brother (laughs) Allen. I'm I'm definitely your brother, yes, so who are you? He's like, hey, I'm one of the Christians here. We're so glad to have you. I said, oh, fantastic. Oh, great. I'm glad, to, glad somebody knows me. He goes, do you have any handout notes that we can give some of the other people who are going to attend your lecture later on? I said, sure. So I, I give him a piece of paper. He hands that paper to some other prisoner who goes off to make photocopies. I didn't know they had photocopy machines in Maximum Security State prisons, but whatever. Well, that guy who's going off to make photocopies, turns out he was a Muslim. And as he's walking to the place to get photocopies, he's reading my notes and he's thinking to himself, hey, this Christian's going to be talking about Islam later on. So in addition to making photocopies, you know what else he does? He tells all the Muslim prisoners as well. Oh, hey, this this Christian guy's going to be talking about Islam. So that afternoon, I'm I'm in this room, Probably half the size of this room. And I'm, you know, we're we're, here and we're talking. Some bunch of Christians are pouring in. All these Muslims are pouring in as well. And I thought to myself, okay, this is going to be really interesting. Okay. So I said, all right, well, here we go. And so I took about 40 minutes to give a a lecture on this tactic that I just mentioned. So basically what you just got in like 10 10 minutes or so. I expanded it to like a 45-minute lecture where I talked about Muhammad, the Hadith, the Sunnah, all the stuff where everyone's affirming the trustworthiness of the bible and so afterwards i was done i uh i said okay are there any questions and a muslim uh raises his hand there's no christians raising their hand and i thought why is no all the christians had their hands down because they wanted to know what their muslim friends were going to say so a muslim raises his hand and he says to me um you know we we were uh we were looking at the verses that you were citing in the quran and it turns out yeah yeah i I, we we agree with what you're saying you're right, the Quran does not teach the Bible is corrupted. And I said, oh, okay, thank you. Another Muslim raises his hand. He says, yes, I, I haven't heard this before, but um, I agree with what you're saying. The Quran does not teach the Bible is corrupted. I said, okay, thank you. Uh, a third Muslim raises his hand. He jumps up and starts to shout at his, uh, his, his Muslim friends. He says, brothers, he says, what are you saying? How can you agree with this Christian? He says, I, the, the Bible, of course, is corrupted. And let me give you a verse in the Quran that proves that the Bible is corrupted. He cites this verse that it kind of sounds like maybe that the Bible is corrupted. But guess who comes to my defense? The Muslims. The Muslims turn to him and say, no, brother, sit down. What you're saying is not true. We've looked at that verse. It does not teach the Bible is corrupted. It teaches that the Christians misunderstand what the Bible says, but the text is pure. Now notice, this didn't work this way because Alan was so clever, right? Alan had a better argument than the Muslim. No, it's not about the Muslim against the Christian. It's about the Muslim looking to his own authority. And if the Muslim is going to submit to the word of Allah in his mind, the Quran is the highest authority he must submit to it. So it's leveraging their commitment to the Quran to my advantage. And so now that... They were saying, okay, you're right. The Quran does not teach the Bible is corrupted. Then I said, okay, so let's talk about what Jesus says. (laughs) right, let's talk about the gospel then. Let's talk about what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John says about Jesus. And then we can kind of make some better progress. Okay, so that's why I say this is how I deal with this particular objection. It's the most common objection, the Bible is corrupted and the most substantial. And uh, if you saw in the, uh, in the book table, there's a, there's a book there called The Ambassador's Guide to Islam. And um, it, it gives more details about this tactic if you're interested in learning more about the tactic and some of the things that Muhammad says even about it, okay? Now remember, that was all in the context of Muslims are required to believe in the books of Allah. But we're continuing on. Uh, we still have, I think, two more articles of faith. Belief in the final judgment. This is a fifth article of faith. This is a required belief in Islam. Muslims believe that at the end of time, everyone will be resurrected and will be judged according to their deeds. And so all your good deeds and bad deeds will be placed on a scale. And by the way, how will we know what good deeds and bad deeds you've committed? The two angels. That's right. Those two angels have been following you all your life. They'll bring all your good deeds and bad deeds there. Okay? And they will be weighed on a scale. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you go to heaven. If your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you go to hell. That generally is the way it works. Now, one of the things I've asked many Muslims is, are you 100% certain that you're going to heaven? And the reason I ask this is because, notice, they have a meritorious-based system of salvation— how you get into heaven is based on merit, on what you do, your good deeds and your bad deeds. But generally speaking, neither we nor Muslims can keep track of all your good deeds and bad deeds, nor know, nor know how much weight there is attributed to each of these. Okay? And so as a result, most Muslims I've asked, are you 100% certain you're going to heaven? will tell me no. Okay? Now, what can we as Christians have 100% confidence in? Yeah, Jesus and our what? Salvation, it's right. And so this is another excellent entry point into a conversation with a Muslim, okay? Is, and this is one of the things I always ask. I say, well, are you 100% certain you're going to heaven? No. Can I tell you how you could be 100% certain, (laughs) right? And then look, you're right there talking about the gospel. You can present the gospel, tell them about what Jesus done, uh, the the offer of the, the pardon that God offers them to be pardoned for the crimes they've committed, so on and so forth. So however you present the gospel, present it. If they complain that the Bible that you're talking about is corrupted, and so the message is corrupted, well, then you can use that tactic to show them: well, actually, your Quran teaches that the Bible is not corrupted. So, so that's how I deal with that. But basically, I'm presenting the gospel as my first thing, and then if they have an objection about the the source, then I deal with it, use the tactic, then I go back to the gospel. Okay, so I'm always focused on the gospel, and then. <clears throat> A final doctrinal belief in Islam is the belief in divine destiny. And uh, this is simply the idea that everything that happens is according to the divine decree of Allah. So it it can come across as somewhat of a fatalistic sort of sense. Um, And this is an interesting question to ask your Muslim friends, family, or neighbors that you might have about how they understand this. Because it really is a question, well then, where's where's human free will involved in this? But nevertheless, this is a common doctrinal belief, a required doctrinal belief. So notice then, we've talked about, and that kind of completes the section about learning about Islam, we've talked about how we can understand Islam and Muslims. But as I said, a key point of any ambassador, a key part of any ambassador's role, is not just to learn, but also to engage. By engage, I mean talk to your Muslim friends, families. And neighbors. And we cannot stand in the sidelines any longer on this. We need to begin to learn about Islam and Muslims and begin to engage them. And by the way, it's really, really easy to talk to Muslims, okay? I remember in fact when I first started witnessing to Muslims, it was years ago, I was living in, where was I living? I think San Diego, yeah, at the time. And I went up to an area in Orange County which I knew had a large population of Muslims that lived in a particular area. So I'm driving around I noticed this strip mall, and it has this Arabic script for a lot of the names of the restaurants. So I thought, oh, this must be the right place. So I pull over, I park, and I see these two guys that look like me, (laughs) who are walking into a restaurant. I thought, they must be Muslims. So I run over to them, and just before they go into the the door of the restaurant, I stop them. I said, excuse me, I said, are you guys Muslims? Now this is like post 9-11, so they're kind of looking around, suspicious, like, who are you asking? I said, no, 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 I just want to know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here to cause any trouble. I just want to know, are you guys Muslims? They said, yeah, we're Muslims. I said, great. I said, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Um, would you like to talk about God and Jesus and the Bible? No, what do you think they said? No. no, they said, sure. Yeah, we'd love to. They said, why don't you come in with us? So we go into this restaurant. We sit down, and for hours, we're talking about God and the Bible and Jesus and all this stuff, having a great time. And so, in fact, it was going so... Now, of course, we didn't agree on everything, but nevertheless, we had a great time. And so, finally, I thought to myself, my wife's probably wondering where I am, because this was going so well. So I stand up to say goodbye. I pull out my wallet to go to pay for my meal, and they said, no, 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 no. They said, we insist on paying for your part of the meal as well. Now, contrast that experience with what would have happened had I walked up to two average Americans in a mall and said to them, excuse me, I'm a Christian. Would you like to talk about God and Jesus in the Bible? What do you think they'd say? (laughs) Get lost, freak. No, we don't want to talk about Jesus. What's the matter with you? It's like, of course not. But see, this tells us something about Muslims. They love to talk about God and religion and all sorts of matters of faith, okay? And starting a conversation with a Muslim about religion is like starting a conversation about sports with an American, You just start it, and it goes. It's virtually effortless. I mean, literally, when we've done mission trips, we've walked out into the streets and literally talked to Muslims on the street, walking. Said, hey, we're we're Christians. We wanted to know if you wanted to talk about God and Jesus. And like, sure, yeah. I mean, it's amazing how easy it is to start a conversation with a Muslim about religious matters. It's not like, you know, in America, it's like, you can't talk about politics and religion at work, okay? Uh, it's the opposite with Muslims. They love to talk about this, and they're totally open about it. So this gives us an open door of conversation to talk to them. Also, it turns out there's a lot of Muslims to talk to. <laughs> there is probably about 1.5 billion Muslims on the planet. Now, to put that in perspective, that means one in five people on the planet is a Muslim. That's a lot of Muslims, Okay. Uh, Those dots you see here are all Muslims, okay? This, again, is in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. That's the the Kaaba there. And from a missions perspective, if you're really into missions, here's one way to look at it. Muslims represent the largest unreached people group on the planet, right? The reason why we we had a 1040 window, you've probably heard about the 1040 windows, because those latitude lines represent, you know, mostly Muslim countries, okay? And again, kind of going from a, Uh, a missions perspective, if you think about it, we estimate that probably 38,000 Muslims die every single day somewhere, you know, around the earth on a regular basis and into eternity without Jesus Christ. 38,000 Muslims die every single day. That's like, uh, you know, I'm a Lakers fan, which is not a good time to be a Lakers fan, but Staples Center, where the Lakers play uh, basketball, holds about 18,000 people. So that arena packed out, Double it is 38,000 people around there. That's a lot of people, okay? So 38,000 Muslims die every single day. Now, of these 1.5 billion Muslims, here are our best estimates based on demographic studies done in various Muslim countries, as well as the CIA and its fact books pertaining to um, the demographics of Muslims, okay? We estimate that about—and again, these numbers aren't like hard and fast— but we estimate about 70% of Muslims are what we would call nominal Muslims, meaning in name only. So these Muslims uh, are born in a Muslim country or they're born in a Muslim family and they sort of adopt Islam by default. and uh, they don't necessarily read the Qur'an, the Hadith, the Sunnah. I've been to many mosques around the United States and in the Middle East. And when I've talked to the imams there, they say, yeah, maybe 15-20% of Muslims come from the community to the mosque. Okay? And so, you know, based on that, we, we think that you know, the numbers are really, really high of the number of nominal Muslims. And again, we have Christian nominals as well. You know, people who are Christian in name only. Uh, we estimate another 15% are Muslims that we would call reformed, and this is just a term to refer to Muslims who do take their faith seriously. So they're not like the nominal ones; they're not just Muslim in name. They actually read the Quran, they study the Hadith, they know about the Sunnah, and they know what's in it. Okay, uh, but these Muslims typically are reformed in the sense that they don't take the passages that address violent jihad uh, literally in the way that we typically would see people like ISIS or you know, um, Al-Qaeda or other people uh, taking them. So they have a tendency to be more interpretive in the way they understand them, to say, no, that's for a different time. Modern-day Muslims do not do that. And then we got another 50% that the media, you know, CNN, Fox News, likes to call radical or extremist. Okay? Now these Muslims are much like the Reformed Muslims in the sense of they do study the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah, but when it comes to those Passages that, con- that condone and command violence, they don't try to reinterpret them in any way. They say, no, these are valid, these are for today, and they engage in those acts. Okay? They either attitudinally support violent jihad, or financially back it, or participate in it themselves. Okay? So how are we then supposed to, as ambassadors for Jesus, engage each of these three types of Muslims? Well, I submit the answer is the way an ambassador would do it. Okay? And ambassadors, as I said, typically have to be ambassadorial-like. And the Bible kind of give us, gives us a guideline for what this might look like. So this is, again, Paul writing his protege, Second Timothy, uh, Timothy, and in the epistle, Second Timothy. He gives Timothy this picture of what it looks like to be a representative of Jesus. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, we're commanded as ambassadors for Jesus to not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, even when people wrong us. By the way, that's, that's not easy. <laughs> when, when you're wrong, do you feel like being kind back to the person? Absolutely not, okay? But we don't have the freedom to be quarrelsome and aggressive and mean-spirited, okay? Now, this can be sometimes difficult because many Muslims come from Middle Eastern cultures, as my family comes from Middle Eastern culture, and Middle Eastern cultures tend to be sometimes kind of like in your face and intimidating, you know? My wife is German, so when she comes over to my parents' house and uh, my parents start to, you know, talk, it sounds like they're arguing. My mom is yelling, my dad's yelling, and my, my, my wife's like, oh my gosh, what are they saying? Because they're speaking a different language. And, I, and I'm like, oh, don't worry, they're just, they're just talking, it's no big deal, you know? And, So we tend to be kind of loud and intense and in your face. And oftentimes, sometimes when you're talking to a Muslim, they could be that way. But even still, we're not allowed to respond in a quarrelsome way or to return evil for evil in any way. We're to be kind, patient to all. Now, what are two practical ways that this might flesh itself out? Well, I'd say two things. Number one, we got to avoid conversations that distract from the gospel. Remember I said, as an ambassador for Christ, our identities, were a representative of Christ. But our our mission, our role, is to proclaim the message of reconciliation. Okay? So when we do that, we're proclaiming the gospel. So my suggestion is, focus on the gospel and avoid things that distract from the gospel. Like, for example, Christians love to talk about violent jihad. And you might be thinking, well, Alan, didn't you talk about violent jihad last week? You know, and, you know, what about that? Yeah, of course, we talked about it, because you want to ask the question, what is jihad? What does it have to do with anything? Is it relevant? Is it, is it relevant for today? But I rarely find that conversations about jihad with a Muslim are ever very, very fruitful at all. Usually, if you start talking about jihad, their, their walls go up, okay? They become defensive about it, right? The other thing is, I hear a lot of Christians making denigrating comments about Muhammad. Okay? This is not helpful, I know you could read the biography of Muhammad and say, man, Muhammad did this, 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 and this. And these things are repulsive to us. We feel like he lived in an immoral way. Okay? I I understand that. But when you start to make comments, denigrating comments about Muhammad, I'm telling you, a Muslim will say to you, okay, you know, at least in their mind, the walls will go up and they don't want to have any more conversation about this. Or they'll just feel like you are, you know, just sort of taking on the usual spin About what you've heard. Now whether it's true or not, is another question, but the point I'm making is this. When you're talking to a Muslim, focus on the gospel. That's all that matters, right? They become a Christian, well then of course the Holy Spirit will transform them from the inside out, and then of course they'll abandon all their beliefs about Muhammad or the Quran or whatever it might be that you might be concerned about. In other words, when it comes to this principle, here's what we say at Stand to Reason. We say this. The gospel is offensive enough. Don't add any more offense to it, okay? <laughs> right? It's already hard enough to get people to buy into the gospel. Because what does the gospel say? You're a sinner, you've committed crimes against God, you deserve to be punished, and you're going to hell. Wow. That doesn't give people a warm, fuzzy feeling, does it? Okay? That's offensive! Okay? So we don't want to make it even worse by being an obnoxious jerk, by being condescending, by being crass, or being, by being cruel. Okay? So the gospel's offensive enough. Don't add any more offense to it. Think of yourself as uh, Timothy listening to what Paul's saying about being a bondservant, not quarrelsome. Let me close with this final thought and then we take some questions. You know, after September 11th, a lot of people said, we are now engaged in a war against terror and against Muslim extremists. They're right about one thing, we are engaged in a war but they are wrong about two things when the war began and who we are at war with you see the war did not begin when the first plane hit the world trade center it began when eve took her first bite and this is not a war against muslims or even muslim extremists they are not the enemy okay they're they're, if anything they're hostages of the enemy the war is against Satan, his army, his lies. Satan is the true terrorist. In fact, five chapters after Paul tells us that we are an ambassador for Jesus, he then tells us the precise nature of the war that we're in. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians ten three through 5 He says, For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. In other words, The weapons we fight with are not guns and tanks and planes and bullets and missiles. That's the weapons of the world. The weapons we as Christians fight with, he says, on the contrary, the ones we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Jesus Christ. You see, it is the enemy Satan who has erected the stronghold of Islam and has captured 20% of the world's population. And so, between now and tomorrow, at this very time, Satan will claim another 38,000 souls. So, never forget we are at war. The enemy is real, but Muslims are not the enemy. And we have been appointed as ambassadors to represent Jesus and to proclaim the message of reconciliation, the gospel message, even to Muslims. Okay? That's our identity and that's our mission.